Our scripture reading for this morning is, comes from Matthew 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You may be seated. Now, as you're being seated, uh, let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you that we can come and worship you. We thank you that uh, you, you actually have the power to give us mercy. And Lord, uh, in that, we, we, we humbly confess that we don't even know how to receive mercy and how to even extend mercy. So Lord, today as we look at this verse, help us to, to clear our minds and to clear our, our eyes so that we can actually see as you see. In your name I pray. Amen. Now, if you know me at all, my name is Heath, uh, for those of you that don't know. Uh, if you know me at all, you know that I cannot tell or explain anything unless I tell a story. So, here we go. It was 1993 and I was 20 years old. And it was, you know, I grew up in the middle of nowhere. And this is the first time I'd been anywhere. And I found myself in Athens, Greece. It was the first time that summer that I'd been on a train. First time that I'd been on a sailboat. First time that I'd been on a taxi. First time that I'd been on a city bus. And I had never been outside of North America before. So I found myself that summer in Athens, Greece. I was part of a team that was doing a short-term work with, uh, with you know, we were doing drama, pantomime, and music in the seaside towns and villages all across Greece. I was a small-town Canadian boy, transplanted into a foreign land completely out of my depth and experience. But the reason why I remember this day, particularly this day, was this was the day that I, of all the firsts, this was the day that I saw my first real beggar. I heard him before I saw him. There was kind of an almost inhuman wailing. And from what I, a phrase that I would find, later find out was Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison. It literally translates, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. So I turned around the corner and in this narrow walkway of cobblestones, I see something straight out of a post-apocalyptic Netflix film. There was a man with no arms and no legs sitting naked except for a pair of shorts on a dirty old mat in the middle of the street. His entire body was burned. And I felt, I felt him look straight at me with this one eye that wasn't disfigured. And I'd like to say, I'd like to say that I showed him respect. I'd like to say that I gave him dignity to deserve it. No. Amidst all the wailing of Lord have mercy, I ogled and I ogled, gawking just like everyone else. Just like everyone else at the freak show sitting in the street. Now, in many ways, this image has defined my life since then. I walked away deeply troubled because I had never seen human need, human misery like that before. It profoundly disturbed me. I rationalized my thinking, you know, consoling myself that somebody must have taken care of him. Somebody fed him. Somebody put that dirty mat on the ground and placed him on it. Somebody, he must have a place to sleep. Somebody must feed him. So I walked away with the words, have mercy, have mercy, have mercy, burning my ears. I was confronted by this man while on a personal quest for tourist trinkets. Stuff to remember my summer by, you know, things for myself. Ironically, I had no idea what I purchased that day. But I will never forget that guy. I walked away hoping that somebody took care of him. Somebody gave him the mercy that he so desperately needed. Sadly, I found out many years later by my language teacher that this guy, he was actually a famous case. He was purposely disfigured, maimed by his family to garner more sympathy. And as a result, more tourist dollars day in and day out. 
Today in, in Vancouver and in 2019, we actually do not have to travel across the world to experience this level of human suffering. All we have to do is take from here the 14 or the 16 bus and ride 10 minutes to the downtown east side. All we have to do is take a stroll through Okanagan Park. Now, I won't wade into the mindful of reasons why these problems exist, but I bet you you're just like me. When you see human need, you walk away, not knowing exactly how to show it, how to show mercy. The secular psychologist Jordan Peterson, in his podcast entitled The Psychological Significance of the Biblical Stories. Now, I don't agree with everything that he says, but he's, he's brilliant on this one point. He says that one of the things, among many, that make humans unique is that we know how we can be hurt, and therefore, we know how to hurt and exploit others. Or put it another way, the reason why we need to look at this text here this morning is because deep down we know we need mercy, and therefore, because of that, we can manipulate others in regards to the giving and the receiving of mercy. Jesus understands this reality when he says in Matthew 5, 7, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So this morning we're going to take a straightforward approach and look at these, at these, at three things rather, dealing with these words of Jesus. We're going to, we're going to define the term, what is mercy anyway? Secondly, we're, we're going to look at what Jesus wants us to understand from this text. And lastly, we're going to look at what Jesus wants us to do with this text, with this understanding of what mercy is. So, what is mercy? Now, all of us here, I'm sure, you know, if you're above like three years old, you've been to the optometrist, optometrist rather, you've had your eyes checked. So you, you go there and you sit in this chair and you have this like thing come in front of your face. It looks like something out of a, you know, a steampunk thing. And, and, and what you do is, is they tell you to close one eye and you're looking at this chart and you see e blah, 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 and you look down there. And what they do is they stick a, a lens in there and they say, is this blurrier or clear? Blurrier or clear? Blurrier or clear? And over the course of time, they hone in to exactly what your prescription needs to be so that you can see clearly, perfectly. Now, in order to get an accurate picture of what mercy is that Jesus is talking about, we need to use the same approach. There are different words, there are different concepts in English that are almost synonymous with mercy, but not quite. Words and concepts that probably could make mercy blurrier rather than clearer. The first lens we need to actually look at is the difference between pity and mercy. Now, pity is something that we feel inside of us. The dictionary states that, you know, pity is sympathetic or kindly sorrow evoked by the suffering, distress, or misfortune of another, often leading one to give relief or aid or to show mercy. But there's a second little meaning in there. Number two says, a cause for regret or disappointment. Pity can have a positive thing. It can mean a positive thing, and it can lead to good, but it also can have a negative side, centered around how we feel internally. When pity is internalized, it can be a negative thing, crippling us. You know, we wallow in our own disappointment, don't we? We pity ourselves for that bad mark we got on our test or that peer review. We wallow in the pity when we miss out on the job promotion. We feel sorry for ourselves and pity ourselves when people don't understand us. In my experience, this negative pity leads to bitterness and anger. When pity is extended outward, it can lead to action, but not always. Pity can be honest and true, but just as likely, when internalized, it can also come from a place of perceived superiority. Pity, therefore, can be a good or bad thing, but it is not a substitute for mercy. Now, honestly, I felt pity for the beggar with no arms and no legs sitting in the street. I was overcome with pity. But due to my fear 
agoraphobia, selfishness, coupled with circumstances outside my control, like A, me not knowing Greek, my pity did not translate into mercy. The beggar was calling for mercy, and I felt pity, and I still walked away. Pity on its own, therefore, must is a blurry lens, rather, and it needs to be rejected as synonymous with mercy. The next lens that we need to test is that of mercy versus grace. Many times in our lingo, we equate these two words as synonymous. So what's the difference? Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's a pastor from the UK, writing in the 1950s, he describes the difference between grace and mercy this way. He says, Grace is especially associated with men in their sins. Okay, when he says men here, he means humanity. Mercy is especially associated with men in their misery. In other words, while grace looks at sin as a whole, mercy looks especially upon the miserable consequences of sin. So that mercy really means a sense of pity plus a desire to relieve the suffering. Grace deals with sin as a whole, and mercy deals with the nitty-gritty, ugly consequences of our brokenness and sin. Now, in my beggar example, grace would look like, you know, at the conditions, the societal issues of healthcare, homelessness, welfare, social safety net, etc. You know, all the stuff that we argue about, you know, about an election coming up. Grace provides answers for all of these problems as a whole. While mercy, on the other hand, deals with the unique consequences that present itself to a specific man in a specific place, burned beyond recognition, sitting in the street begging for change. Mercy, as Dr. Jones says, is pity plus a call to action to relieve suffering. Pity plus compassionate action. Now, I think we're a little clearer on our understanding now. But there must, there must, be, there must be look at one more thing to actually hone in, to get a specific clear view. And that is the relationship between forgiveness and mercy. Now, this idea of forgiveness and mercy is a huge theme that threads its way all through the book of Matthew. And on the surface, it may not look so obvious. Much of the time when we think about mercy, you know, don't we really? We think about practical, tangible things. You know, we think of food, we think of clothing, we think of shelter, which is correct. Now, in Vancouver, when we think about mercy, we think of the downtown east side. We even have a term that we use as the church, you know, as a community to engage people in suffering. And we call that mercy ministries. Now, I'm not saying that this is wrong, but if we only think mercy in this way, we are in danger of missing the full point of what Jesus is trying to say here. If mercy specifically deals with the ugly consequence of brokenness and sin, then mercy is also needed in the consequences of fractured, strained, and broken human relationships. If the beggar I addressed earlier, or the guy camped out in Oppenheimer Park, he, if he needs food, he or she needs shelter, if they need, if they're societally broken, if they need, they need mercy, don't they? If they're relationally or socially broken, if they've wronged one another, if they're estranged from their families, then they need mercy as well. Usually mercy in this way is in the form of forgiveness and, and reconciliation. If someone has enough means to have all the necessities of life, even to the point of excess, like you and I. Let's face it, if we bought ourselves a coffee this morning, that's us. Yet we have broken relationships, or we feel physically or spiritually superior, then we too, we too are in need of mercy. Thinking back, the thing that haunted me the most when I gazed at that beggar in the street, the thing that still haunts me today when I'm on the downtown east side, is, is that I, I see my own heart, ugly, disfigured, in need of mercy. 
I didn't realize it at the time, but I was in need of mercy, just as that beggar was. Just in a different way. Mercy is not just a downtown east side thing. Think, I'll say that again. Mercy is not just a downtown east side thing, but one that affects every single one of us here this morning. This is the meaning under the meaning. Forgiveness is intrinsically linked to mercy. Now, we, we need forgiveness from God, right? And we need to forgiveness from others so that we can actually extend forgiveness to those around us. Forgiveness is ex- intrinsically linked to mercy. Yet mercy is broader than just forgiveness for specific offenses. Mercy in relation to forgiveness is a generous attitude which is willing to see issues from the other's point of view and it's not willing to take offense or to gloat over other shortcomings. To show mercy in the context of forgiveness, it looks a little bit like this. Imagine a scenario that someone has wronged you, betrayed you even. Now, we all have somebody in our head, don't we? If you are the victim in this scenario, if mercy is pity plus compassion to action, then to forgive, you must see past your hurt, beyond your need for justice and being wrong. Mercy requires you to see past yourself and not gloat over the moral superiority you have towards your perpetrator. This is why people like Corey Tamboon, incarcerated by the Nazi regime during World War II in a concentration camp. This is why she can write these words. She says, Forgiveness is the key that unlocks the door of resentment and the handcuffs of hatred. It is a power that breaks the chains of bitterness and the shackles of selfishness. Mercy must overlook other shortcomings and extend that mercy through forgiveness. Otherwise, in being wronged, you, the victim, can actually do wrong by not forgiving. You walk away like I did. You walk away like I did from the beggar, leaving them in their own misery. Stated negatively, if we withhold forgiveness when it's in our power to do so, we extend vengeance rather than mercy. Yeah, that's a Debbie Downer, huh? So to understand what Jesus is saying here in our text, we we need to have our vision corrected to what Jesus understands mercy to be. Mercy, therefore, is, is more than just pity plus any old action, but pity plus compassionate action. And it's not limited to those in physical you know, need around us, but also in the context of our human relationships. This is the definition of mercy that we need to have clearly in our focus with our vision correctors so that now we can look at our second point. And so, when, so we can understand what Jesus says when he says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. So what does he want us to understand? I think this statement, out of all the Beatitudes, or these phrases at the beginning part of Matthew 5, this is one of the easiest to read and most often misunderstood. Subconsciously, when we read, we read this wrong, don't we? I think in our heads, when we read, blessed are the merciful, we functionally understand, rewarded are the merciful. We think that the reciprocal nature of this statement is one of mercy for hire, contractual in nature, you know, karma even, or worse yet, optional. If I go and volunteer, you know, name whatever organization, then I will, will get this size of reward. But if I go and I really sacrifice it, I give a boatload of money and go overseas, feed thousands of homeless, like Mother Teresa, my reward will be huge. This is what we subconsciously think of here. Now, if you spend any time in a European city, you will notice the abundance of statues. that They seem to be everywhere on every street corner. It's, it's weird when you come from a North American city. Countless, countless times, rather, I've walked up and I've read the little name on the plaque and I've kind of Googled why this individual is celebrated. And more often than not, 
The person cast in bronze is there because of some philanthropic act. A superior person with power and means who helped those in a lower state. A societal deed worthy to be remembered. See, we need Jesus' words here in Matthew. And when we read them, rather, we, we treat mercy in a philanthropic way. Subconsciously doing things to be seen and remembered. We this reality is here. We show mercy as if our statue depends on it. The problem is, is that that's not mercy. So if we ex- try to extend mercy this way, we end up like this disfigured and disgraced statue of Robert E. Lee in Charlottesville, Virginia. Remember a couple years ago, there was a, he was like a slave owner, and uh, there was a huge controversy, and people wanted to tear down. So what, what ended up happening, he was covered up with a tarp and scheduled for removal. You see, if, if we treat mercy in this way, we'll have our statues covered up due to the shifting sands of political correct cultural values. Mercy for hire or personal philanthropic sacrifice is not mercy. Yes, it does help others in some way, but that's not true mercy. That's not the mercy that Jesus is referring to here. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 12 and 13, Jesus states, But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus desires us to show mercy, pity plus compassionate action rather than philanthropic sacrifice for personal gain. The problem is that when we read this text, that we also think mercy can be an optional thing as well. We think, eh, it's no big deal. I don't, you know, I don't need to show mercy. It's not a problem. I gave X amount of dollars last year. I'm good. Or you think, eh, God will still show me mercy. The problem is, is that if you treat mercy as optional or on a contractual basis, showing mercy to receive mercy, forgiving to be forgiven, then you actually deny the whole need for grace itself. Because it's up to you. You end up with forgiveness and acceptance based on your merit. That isn't... So if it's not philanthropic or optional, then how do we understand this text? A dusty old theologian, Brunner, he, he describes this verse this way. He says... Being merciful is not a condition for God's grace, but rather a necessary consequence. This is what Jesus wants us to understand here. In other words, it's an inside-out thing. If I have been shown mercy, then as a consequence, as an indicator of inner change, then I will show mercy to others. If I have been forgiven, if that's really true, then as wounded as I am, as difficult as it is, I must forgive. I must show mercy to others. What right do we have to withhold it? Now, when I was a kid, I was a firstborn, a test child. But I couldn't understand why my mom was harder on me than my sister. She wasn't mean, per se. She was just really hard and really strict. And I I felt negative pity on myself. And I exhibited externally as anger towards my mother. And we'd fight all the time. One time when I was about 18 years old, we had this massive blowout fight. I told my mom off. I told her where to go, how to get there, where to put it when she got there. Now, expecting my mom to fight back with her typical fierceness, I was surprised. She, she broke. She started weeping. I, genuinely, I was confused. I'm like, okay, what's going on? It was then that I learned of her past. It was then that I learned all the abuse she endured as a child. Instantly, my self-pity 
was overcome with compassion for my mother. And what was my response? When I started to load up my car, I was going to drive down south to where my grandfather was. And I intended to mess him up with my baseball bat. I must confess, I intended to kill him. In tears and in anguish, my mom, pleading with me to stay, she says these words that I will never forget. She's, she's standing in front of my car with her hand on the hood, and she says, she's yelling at me, Heath, you can't do this. If I have forgiven him, you have no right to not forgive as well. You see, I felt pity for my mom, and it led to action. I acted on a need for retribution rather than mercy. My mom's words stopped me in my tracks. My mother understood that what Jesus was saying here. She was pleading with me to forego for, for, to vengeance for mercy. My mom forgave even when this perpetrator showed no signs of regret or remorse. My mom showed mercy to a man who, humanly speaking, didn't deserve forgiveness. And up until his death, he never asked for it. In fact, my mom forgave to the point even when he did die of natural causes... My mom and my dad did his funeral. This is what Jesus wants us to understand here. Blessed are the merciful because they have surrendered their need for vengeance and justice to the God who can actually accomplish it. And in doing so, they will receive ultimate mercy themselves. When this happens, we become transformed and we can actually extend forgiving mercy. This is why showing mercy is not an optional thing, to cycle back to our first point. This is why we must read the Beatitudes together. One needs to be poor in spirit, spiritually a beggar, bringing nothing to the table, nothing of our own, verse 3. They, we must mourn the brokenness and state of the fallenness of this world, it's verse 4. We need, the, we need to possess a quality of meekness, verse 5. And finally, in order to show mercy, we need to hunger and we need to thirst for righteousness, that's verse 6. The list here is progressive. It's not a pick-and-choose personality thing here. It's not a finding your Sermon on the Mount Enneagram number. Jesus here does not allow any room to say, well, I'm not merciful, so I'll just concentrate on mourning. Or, you know, I've been persecuted enough, so I don't actually need to show mercy. This is not the way it works. It's all or nothing. See, on our own, we're all just like me. We see people, limbless beggars in our lives, and we, we see people in need, and out of self-preservation, or an unwillingness to show mercy, we, we feel pity and we walk away. Or even worse, we see hurt, brokenness, and injustice, and we end up with a baseball bat in our hand, eager to enact vengeance under the guise of justice. We act without mercy. We need to come to terms that in our own strength, we cannot live up to what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 5 verse 7. On our own, we're stuck. On our own, we're stuck. Jesus wants us to know that showing mercy is a byproduct of a heart that has changed. I'll, I'll repeat that. Jesus wants us to know that showing mercy is a byproduct of a heart that's changed. So the obvious question then is, what gives us the power to forgive our worst enemy? How can our hearts be changed? Well, if you turn with me to this tiny look of, book of Jude, it's right before the book of Revelation, which is at the end of the Bible. Now, Jude is kind of an intense thing. It's like a 25-verse Twitter rant. You know, much like today, Jude was dealing with and speaking to a church and a people fraught with problems. 
men had come in teaching different opinions of what you know truth was and how people were to act towards each other. Jude sets the record straight, and in a series of almost tweetable phrases, he addresses just how we are to deal with this conflict. Mirroring Jesus' words in Matthew 5, he elaborates for us where this source of mercy comes from and what it's supposed to look like in the context of our everyday interactions. In verses 17 to 19, the author says this. He says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers, following their ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Jude reminds his audience that they, there will be people that scoff at you. There will be people that are against you. And there will be people that are against what's true, and they will oppose you, and they will purposely throw you under the bus every time. They will betray you for their own benefit and their own glory. They will cause divisions. For all intents and purposes, they are your enemy. And that person might be the person sitting behind you this morning. (laughs) See, these people are people that we would like to execute vengeance on. But remember... On our own and by our own merit, it's impossible to show mercy. So what does Jude say? How does he deal with this? He reminds the readers who they are, what their source of hope was, and what their source of power is. He says in verses 20 and 21, he says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. She says, yeah, you can do it on your own. In fact, you were once just like they were. Jude reminds them that they were once the people causing division, that they were once the people in need of mercy. Jude says that the only difference between the scoffers and his audience is the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only difference this morning between you and your worst enemy is the mercy of Jesus Christ. Think about that. Let that sink in a bit. Now, some of you might be left wondering, okay, what is that? What is this mercy of Jesus? So God the Father, he looks down at us, and he says to us, he he looks and sees humanity as a people, we're people of evil, we're ungodly, we're worldly, broken, lost. And as Jordan Peterson says, that we, we, we know how to be hurt, so we actually use that knowledge to hurt, manipulate, and control others. We are, as Romans chapter 1 says, Deserving of vengeance, justice, and wrath. Now, this is not a popular topic in our culture today. We, we, you know, we, we live in a world of strength-based answers, don't we? Not need-based answers. The Bible says that we are a people of need, period. We need help outside of ourselves. And in an act of mercy, God sends his son, Jesus, to be one of us. And he dies. He dies for us. He takes all our shame, all our guilt. He takes all of this vengeance and justice and wrath that should be applied to you and to me. And he dies horribly on a cross so that our debt is paid. Retribution meant for us is paid for by Jesus. Now, three days later, Jesus rises from the dead, destroys the punishment of sin. But not only does he pay that price for our sin, but by rising from the dead, he actually sets us free from the consequences of our guilt and our shame. He makes us a people of mercy. Now, if we acknowledge our brokenness, our sin, and accept the mercy of Jesus, we receive a new heart. The capacity to actually show mercy to others. We have, as Jude says, the ability to keep ourselves in the love of God. 
We have the ability to forgive those that have hurt us the most. Just like my mom. Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which is the mercy of Christ, we receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Our showing of mercy is a consequence of the mercy of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus wants us to know. Without being changed by the mercy of Jesus, we will exhibit either philanthropic help to others, indifference towards others, or vengeance upon others. So, with this in mind, we must now turn our attention to our third point and consider that what what does Jesus want us to do with this understanding? So, if our hearts have been changed, what does it actually look like to show mercy in this context of our everyday relationships and people that we see in our neighborhoods? Jude 20-23 says this, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Okay, we read that already. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating the garments stained by the flesh. Jude says, okay, if your heart has changed, if you are a people that have received mercy, then as a consequence, you will show mercy to two types of people. One is just people who doubt straight up. The other is you will actually proactively save others from the fire. So, number one. How many, how many of you have tried to explain, you know, truths to others, and, and they just don't seem to get it? I don't know if you can write, but there, there, believe it or not, there are aspects of this Christian life that are quite frankly weird, and that we fight over. So, so some of the time, what do we do with these people that doubt? We just, we explain them over and over and over, and it seems like every year they're still struggling with the same thing. So what do we do? We, we hide them off, we isolate them, and we group them into silos of doubt, And we write them off as irrelevant, not worth wasting valuable time on. You know, we categorize them with a sign on the silo that says, not leadership material. See, we functionally act like they don't exist, just as I did with the limbless beggar. We have pity, sure, yeah, but that pity doesn't really translate into compassionate action at all, but rather indifference or worse, hostility. The text says, regards of that, we are not to isolate them and walk away like I did with the beggar. We are to show mercy. We are to have compassion on them and actively seek their reconciliation into the community and personal relationships. Why? Because we were once just like them. And the God of the universe did not walk away from us. The second group of people are those in danger. They're either flirting with or fully engulfed in the flames of an issue, a lifestyle, or a belief that's destroying them. And we all know the usual suspects. You know, drug and alcohol addiction, porn use, illicit affairs, online gambling, overeating, overworking, over whatever else we do. We all know someone embroiled in one or many of these issues. But here in Vancouver, I think one of the, the silent, deadly ones is loneliness. Now, it can, it can express itself in depression, anxiety, and materialism. In this neighborhood, there are people walking around fully engulfed in the flames of loneliness and to cope, they self-medicate with pharmaceuticals or drugs, you know, they, they, with their gender, with their sexuality, with their career, with the acquisition of, of stuff. And the list goes on and on. You could just add on to it. Jude just doesn't say here, ah, stand by and watch, you know, roasting marshmallows over these people as they burn. 
he admonishes us to be proactive, to reach into the fire and save. Jude bluntly states that mercy here means that we get our hands dirty. It means that we actually have to put our big boy pants on and save others. There was a movie that came over out a few years ago, and it was called Hacksaw Ridge. It tells an amazing true story of a conscientious objector during World War II. In other words, a guy who didn't believe in war, he, he goes to war. He was ostracized by his unit and became an outcast and persecuted because he's, his faith wouldn't allow him to hold a gun or to kill. He was a medic. Regardless, he was sent to Okinawa, Japan and his, with his unit, and they were tasked to take this notorious place called Hacksaw Ridge. Now, pledging not to kill, this man crawls amidst the dead and the dying. One by one, drags people that persecuted him back to the ridge and down to safety. This man personally saved 75 of his unit. See, this is the image that I think Jude wants us to have here. See, the world is nasty, it's dangerous, it's messy, it's yucky, and showing mercy means that we very well might well risk our lives. We have to get in the thick of it. Just like this man in Hacksaw Ridge. But the point that I want to make here is that a conscientious objector, he understood that he did not have to agree with war to serve his country. He did not capitulate his beliefs to help others. I repeat that. He did not capitulate his beliefs to show mercy. Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, you need to hear that. Jude is saying that showing mercy involves us risking ourselves for the other. Jesus gave his life for us, and as a consequence, we are to risk our safety for others. The one in need. Mercy is proactive. This is visceral. This is difficult for us to, to hear because it requires us to actually do something. It requires us to show mercy and to help people engaged in a lifestyle and an issue that we actually don't agree with or find morally repugnant. But it doesn't make it any less true. Jude continues further saying that we are actually to show mercy mixed with fear. We are to hate, hate rather, he uses this interesting phrase, the garments stained by the flesh. Jude is saying that, that in these difficult issues, we are to understand and hate the destructive nature of sin. We are to loathe how it entices. We are loathe, we are to hate how it entraps and enslaves. And at the same time, we are actively to show mercy to those who are ensnared by that very same sin. Showing mercy is not an easy thing. And most of the time, we either walk away like I did, or we attack with a baseball bat, often executing vengeance on the very people who need mercy the most. One of the most compelling examples of what Jude calls us to here is found in the early church in Rome. The Romans, it was documented, they were confused and confounded that during times of, you know, sickness, plague, it was commonly documented that persecuted Christians, rather than fleeing the city like everybody else, they went into the city, serving the dead and the dying. Everyone ran for their lives, and the Christians sacrificed their lives for the other. This is the mercy that Jesus is calling us to here in Matthew 5, verse 7. Now, I'm not naive here or altruistic. The early church understood Jesus' words. They were changed by it and acted on them. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This morning, you might be saying, yeah, I don't need to deal with mercy. I'm good. Or you recognize that you're maybe not in a good place to deal with mercy right now. You're just eh, too hurt or can't possibly open up to show mercy. 
Now, if you're there this morning, you end up like me, walking away from the beggar and showing no mercy at all. And by default, you're the one who loses. You're the one that doesn't receive mercy. I plead with you this morning to find the answers you desperately need in the one who actually gives you mercy that you didn't know you needed. This morning, you also could be tempted to say, in a philanthropic way, wow, I need to do better. I need to show mercy more. I need to forgive that person that has wronged me. And instead of leaning into that mercy that comes from Jesus, you double down on your own merit. You work harder, you try harder, you manipulate people harder, and you, and you control the circumstances in your own strength. In reality, you end up like me, with a, with a nice, either with a statue in your honor or a baseball bat in your hand, executing mercy, extending vengeance rather than mercy. You need to surrender your control, your desire for, for, for mercy to the one who can actually give you mercy. You need the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ to change you so that you can actually be empowered to show real mercy to others. Now, others of you this morning might have given and given and given and given and given until there's nothing left. And showing mercy, you have given until your cup has been emptied, scraping at the bottom. So this morning, you actually need to be reminded to reconnect yourself to the one who can actually fill your cup again. You need to, as Jude says here, keep yourselves in the love of God. And lastly, some of you might be here this morning with people in your lives who are in need of mercy. Difficult people in difficult circumstances desperately in need of forgiveness and mercy. We need to confess that we find that we are unable to show mercy to those who doubt. We need to acknowledge that we are crippled and cannot save people out of the fire in our own strength. This morning we need to be reminded that in order to show mercy, we need to be transformed by Jesus. So I leave you with the words of Jesus. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And I ask you to ponder, where is your source of mercy this morning? Who do you need to show mercy to? Who do you need to risk to save out of the fire? Would you please stand with me? We're going to respond. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.